I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the show, we continue our Israel-Palestine coverage. Two interviews on this edition of the show. Later, we'll be speaking with Jeff Halper of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. But first, Huwada Araf co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement. I have to admit, I've uh, broken bread with Hawada. We were at a dinner together. I've spoken to her before in person. So the dynamic of this conversation may feel a bit different than previous conversations because of that. If you're unfamiliar with Hawada, she is the co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement. She's a Palestinian-American attorney, and I hope you'll get something out of her perspective. So without any further ado, Huwada Araf. Also, a quick note, this conversation was recorded on the night of 10-16-2023. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really, really happy to be speaking with. Uh, I'm a big fan of hers. Huwaida Araf, a Palestinian-American activist and lawyer and the co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement. Uh, I, you know, I always open by asking, how are you? But this, I, I, I feel it's a hard time for everyone right now. Yeah, it certainly is. We are living in unbelievably horrific times. So I think that most of us who are aware of what's happening and witnessing mass atrocities taking place uh, and our elected officials and media 
egging it on and enabling it are just horrified, horrified and, and working 24-7 to try to stop it. Hubaida, if I could, I want to start with, with how I met you. Uh, we actually uh, first met at a gala dinner. I believe it was a year or so ago. It was around the time of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, it was a joint conference on uh, Israel and Palestine by the Institute for Research Middle East Policy and the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. And, you know, I was so impressed because you know, you really spoke to the desire for justice and freedom and peace. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of rhetoric now uh, from very odious figures. Right now I'm in Florida, so I'm having to hear these lines by figures like Ron DeSantis uh, saying, oh, all Palestinians are just anti-Semites. And then we see, you know, a six-year-old Palestinian American boy murdered shortly thereafter. And I think right now people have to understand that Palestinian Americans are human beings. And I just wanted you to be able to talk about, uh, you know, your feelings on this dangerous moment where we're seeing the dehumanization of Palestinian Americans yeah, I mean, thank you for that question because it's so true that I do. I, I've committed, I think, most of my adult life to to fighting for freedom and justice, and it's what everyone says they they want for the most part, right? As you said, there's a lot of uh, rhetoric. We pay a lot of lip service to freedom, democracy, uh, liberty, human rights, but the actions that governments take that elected officials take uh, and other corporate or political entities take do not contribute to actually you know, bringing about what we say we stand for. And that's because a lot of you know political and financial interests come into place, come into play, or people have different views about what peace, freedom, and human rights means. And unfortunately, sometimes groups of people mean as long as it applies to them uh, or people that look like them. And that's definitely not what I think it should mean. I think a lot of people, uh, I'd like to believe that most people stand with me and that it's just the voices of kind of insanity and those of interests that do not serve the masses are the ones that often prevail until we are able to organize enough to make our voices louder. And as far as Palestinian Americans are concerned, I mean, Palestinians in general, I feel like almost every day of my existence, uh, I have to justify uh, who I am, correct uh, different mis, um, misperceptions about who I am or what it even means to be a Palestinian and to support the Palestinian freedom struggle. And over the last 10 days now with this unbelievable um, warmongering, really, I can't even think of, of, of a, a different word to support what we have been seeing, uh, of warmongering and unbridled support for Israeli atrocities that are being committed, um, pushing out narratives about Palestinians that just are not true, and failing to put the 
Hamas attack of October 7th into context, not to justify it. Nobody wants to justify killing of anybody, but people have to understand why there is violence if we want to do something to end the violence. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is the American, the U.S. administration doing exactly the opposite. I have been campaigning for almost 20 years to change the conditions that Palestinians live under because it is conditions, they are conditions that nobody, no human being would accept for themselves. And Palestinians and others have been warning for years now that the situation specifically in Gaza is untenable. It is going to explode. Uh, I don't know if your listeners have an idea, but Gaza is a small strip of land. You're talking 25 miles by seven miles wide. That's it. Israel has imprisoned 2.2 million Palestinians in there. So Israel says, we ended the occupation of Gaza in 2005 and we pulled our troops out. They pulled their troops and their settlers out, but they completely closed the territory. So anything that comes in and out of Gaza is controlled by Israel. So Israel- There's military checkpoints and yeah. All around and everything, even humanitarian aid to get into Gaza has to go through Israel and Israel limits that. What can be brought in if you need to go out um, to go to school, to take up a scholarship, to get medical attention that's not available in Gaza, you need to apply for permission and frequently that permission is denied. 70% uh, of the population of Gaza are original refugees from their homelands only a few miles away that Israel has locked them out of and will not allow them to go back to. Half of the population, they are children. And because of Israel's policy, it's this complete closure policy that has been ongoing for 16 years, they have created a situation of mass poverty, destroyed the economy. Uh, and on top of that, since 2008, there have been five major military assaults where over 6,000 Palestinian have been killed. Um, how much of that can you take when you're trapped in an open air prison and Israel is frequently every couple of years bombing you? Um, attacking you by air, sea, and land, and you have no other choice. And the world seems to want Palestinians to just lie down and die quietly, because even when we resist nonviolently, we're vilified. In 2008, there was a huge, 2018, I'm sorry, there was a huge massive mobilization in Gaza, unarmed people by the thousands, just marching to the edges of Gaza, wanting to see, wanting to march to their homeland, and Israel placed snipers on hilltops and shot at them like fish in a barrel. Over 200 Palestinians killed, 36,000 injured, and nobody held accountable. And Gazans were blamed for that instead of holding Israel accountable. These are war crimes. And then so nonviolent resistance is attacked violently or vilified. And that what are Palestinians supposed to do? Uh, and so we saw the attack on October 7th, and uh, Israel has now unleashed its full military force in announcing intentions, clear intentions to flatten all of Gaza. Israel well, we just had, not to interrupt you, but we just had the Israel's defense minister saying, we are fighting human animals. I mean, yeah. this is really extreme rhetoric. 
fighting human animals. So they cut off for over a week now for 10 days. Israel has cut off because I said everything that gets in and out goes through Israel. They have cut food, water, fuel, and electricity. And they're bombing in seven days. Israel has dropped 6,000 bombs on the small territory where people are imprisoned inside with nowhere to go. They can't even flee the bombs. And so the images that we are seeing are children buried under rubble and Palestinians not even having the tools to be able to dig a lot of them out. It is, it is horrific what we're seeing. And all we see from the United States is we stand with Israel. It's abhorrent. I am... Um, Last thing, I'm an international human rights attorney. And yesterday I was on a call with human rights scholars and attorneys. And there is little doubt that what we are seeing is um, genocide. What we are seeing is genocide. And the question is, how do you stop it and not just try to prosecute for it later? So I was going to mention, when I bring up that line that Israel's defense minister made, you know, this we are fighting human animals line. People will say, well, that's in reference to Hamas. And I'm saying, you know, th- this is indiscriminate bombing. It's killing civilians without any, you know, it, it, there's no sense of uh, these people being treated as civilians. It, you know, the water supply is being cut off. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit more? Absolutely. Absolutely. I- I mean, statement after statement from Israeli officials and elected representatives have uh, clearly stated that they don't see any civilians in Gaza. Um, uh, An elected member of the Israeli parliament today was just arguing that she actually said Gaza children brought this upon themselves. And a former Israeli general who was advising and and riling up the troops was telling the troops, annihilate them, leave nobody, no child, no mother, no father, erase the memory of them. These are documented statements coming out from Israeli leaders, and therefore it, it states a clear intention to wipe out everybody. They don't see civilians. Um, they They see human animals, people not worthy of living, and they have declared their intention to wipe them out. I just wanted to add to that. I'm, I'm looking at the news right now. So Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, so not uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, said, you know, in a press conference, there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. I mean, this is what is openly being said. I really want people to take that in. Now, uh, Huada, could you talk about the chilling effect that could be happening with regards to free speech right now. I know a few months ago, you actually had uh, an experience with that chilling effect uh, at a uh, after a high school event in Michigan. Could you speak a little bit to that? Uh, yes. It, but just to kind of um, go back to the, the Israeli president's statement, uh, absolutely. And it's not new that they don't consider Palestinian civilians to be civilians at all. Back in 2003, I remember first making a big issue of it because there was a hearing, a court hearing uh, for the against the Israeli military brought by the parents of Rachel Corey, an American peace activist that was killed in Gaza. She was run over by an Israeli driving a military bulldozer and, and she was crushed to death. 
And in open court, an Israeli general testifying said, quote, there are no civilians in time of war. Now, that is an absurd statement. That's what international humanitarian law is all about, protecting civilians in a time of war. The other reason that is an absurd statement is because Israel frequently uh, presents itself as being at war with Gaza. It occupies Gaza. It doesn't matter that they don't have actual boots on the ground. They control all aspects of, of the people's lives in Gaza. So according to international law, they have effective control. They control this area. So they are responsible. Israel is responsible for the health and well-being of the civilian population in areas that it controls. And then so to say you're declaring a war uh, and, and also trying to present it as a defensive measure when occupation and aggression is the initial kind of um, aggression, you can't claim self-defense and you can't legally declare a war on the people that you that you occupy. But this is what Israel is doing. And we have been trying to speak out about this for years, for decades. This is a 75 year plus long struggle for Palestinians for their freedom from Israeli, not only occupation, but settler colonialism and from what now all major human rights organizations agree upon is apartheid. These are crimes against humanity. And so advocating for it um, is gets us attacked. So I was a few months ago in a high school talking about my experience with racism and discrimination. And I just said a few words about the Palestinian struggle. Uh, and those few words, less than a couple minutes, uh, talking about Palestinians being in a struggle for their freedom, and I was viciously attacked, accused of being an anti-Semite. Uh, there was an uproar that was initiated by, unfortunately, Zionist organizations in the community that make it their business to silence the Palestinian narrative and to make examples, really, out of anyone who would dare to speak out by making sure that they uh, lose their jobs, that they are vilified, that they are doxxed in different ways. Uh, I am used to that, unfor unfortunately, so I didn't let it bother me too much, except for being worried as to, you know, what this might do to others, especially the students that organized the program that invited me. These students wanted to learn more. These students want to speak up for justice. And then when they saw what happened to me and how I was just my name dragged through the mud and even the mainstream media just picking up on the attacks on my character rather than really questioning what did I say? What did I say that Palestinians are fighting for their freedom? And what I also said was that it's not a religious struggle. And in fact, the organization that I co-founded called on people from all over the world and many of our strongest allies are Jews, Jewish Israelis, Jewish Europeans, Jewish Americans, standing with Palestinians, because these are the people and this is the struggle that is advocating for freedom and, and human rights and equality for everybody. Yeah, I was I was going to add to that. I was going to say, you know, one of the things I always noticed when I was in university on campus was that, you know, some of the most um, ardent voices in support of the pro-Palestinian cause were often you know, Jewish American students. Yeah, absolutely. And now we're seeing, to just to get on the um, the, the chilling uh, effect of, of what's happening now, absolutely uh, 
we I, I just got uh, an alert from Palestine Legal earlier today, and Palestine Legal is an organization that advocates for the rights of people, generally students, to be able to freely advocate for Palestinian rights without facing repercussions or silencing. And they are being inundated, hundreds of calls and requests for help, people being fired, people being visited by the FBI, people being um, sidelined and threatened by their either their places of work or their universities. Uh, so it is a very um, a, a chilling environment. And some of the policies that we're, we're hearing about just harkens back to like McCarthyism. And it is, when you think about it, why it is because we are saying that Palestinians deserve their freedom. Isn't that what this country is supposed to stand for? One thing I wanted to delve into uh, was, you know, there's people I'm seeing now that I, I tend to respect that are saying things that I, I think really paint the wrong picture. So I know that you've used the slogan, uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And there's a lot of people that hear that and say that's a call for genocide. Now, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, you know, I've broken bread with you. I mean, I, I was at a gala dinner with you. I don't think you're calling for genocide of Jewish people when you say free Palestine. So what do you mean when you say uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free? You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you bring that up. If you look at the uh, report of Beit Selim, which is the largest and oldest Israeli human rights organization, they put out a report in 2021, I believe, uh, calling out Israel's uh, policies and Israel's rule over Palestinians as apartheid. And they titled it, From the River to the Sea, A Regime of Jewish Supremacy. When we talk about the river to the sea, we talk about the historic land of Palestine from the uh, River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. And right now we have a situation where Israel is uh, practicing a, a form of apartheid and settler colonial domination over the people and even Palestinian citizens of Israel, because inside Israel itself, and not the occupied West Bank or Gaza, you have about 20% Israeli citizens that are Palestinians. They are the Palestinians that managed to remain after Israel established its state and kicked out or killed 750,000 Palestinians. A few, uh, a few villages were able to remain and they now make up 20% of the population. But there are 60 laws on the books that discriminate against those Palestinians just based on the fact that they're not Jewish. So rights are accorded right now based on whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. And that's the best case scenario for Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. Then you have Palestinians in Jerusalem who are really stateless. They frequently have their homes demolished. They are beaten. They are arrested without cause. And you have the West Bank, which is even more oppressive, and Gaza, which is the worst. So you have these various tiers of, of rights assigned all based on the fact that you're not Palestinian, uh, you're not, sorry, you're not Jewish. Uh, so what you have is, well, as I said, apartheid and all of these things contribute to making up the system of apartheid, which is a system that that favors uh, and, and supports domination of one group over another. It's exactly what you're uh, 
what you have. And we're calling for the exact opposite, for the whole land to be free for all people who want to live there, to be able to live there uh, and, and be treated equally, to have a government that is for the people, by the people. And so where um, rights are not um, doled out based on what your religion is or what your ethnicity is. And that we say Palestine because it's the historic land of, of Palestine. In the end, whatever it's called, as long as people are able to live free, that's what we're campaigning for. Freedom and human rights and democracy for everybody. Our call for justice for Palestinians in no way um, is a call to, to kick out Jews or to kill Jews or anything like that. In fact, if you talk to almost any Palestinian, they'll Harken back to the days before, of course, this is the older generation, but even the younger generation have studied and known about it, that before the creation of the state of Israel, Jews and Palestinians, Muslims and Christians and Jews all lived together just fine. It was the establishment of the state and the and the, the settler colonialism that now defines it uh, is what is oppressing people and what must be dismantled. I just had a few more questions. I know I know we're running up against a, a half an hour here, but if we can. Um... And just wait, I, just to, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but just so people kind of understand when we, when the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa was calling too for the end of apartheid, they weren't calling, you know, to kick out the Afrikaners. They were calling for a dismantlement of this system of discrimination. And that is exactly what we're calling for. I think, uh... A lot of people right now are in need uh, of a human picture of Palestinians, Palestinian Americans, and activists like yourself. So I was wondering, I know the story of how you first became aware of the plight of, of Palestinians uh, growing up, but maybe you could relay that story to my audience. And also, if you could, after that, I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the Second Intifada, because I know you were there for that as well. Wow, that's a big question for only having a little bit of time left. I mean, are, are you willing to go a little bit? Uh, sure. Let me see if I can summarize. Um, so I am you know, American. I was born and raised here. My parents came here. My mom was about nine months pregnant with me, and I'm the oldest of five children now. So they immigrated here in order to be able to start a, a life where they'll be able to guarantee their children or provide their children with with freedom and uh, and opportunities that they knew was not available in Palestine. And unfortunately, still today, that was true when they first came here. I won't tell you how many years ago that is, so I won't give away my age, but it's, it's worse today. And uh, when I, you know, growing up, I learned more about the, the cause after college. I wanted to learn more about why my parents left kind of everything they knew to come to the United States. And so I moved to Jerusalem and I, the intention was to spend a year there. And I was working for a conflict resolution organization to bring Jews and Palestinians together. Uh, but what I saw was the institutionalized uh, racism and discrimination and I also learned that these programs that just talk about peace are not enough. You know, it was great that a lot of uh, Jewish and um, Palestinian, both Christian and, and Muslim kids were learning to, were getting to know each other and breaking down stereotypes. But 
it, it wasn't, it did nothing to address the, the root cause of what's tearing these kids and what's tearing people apart. And it is a system that I discussed. And so I became convinced that we can't just talk about peace and then feel good about ourselves that we have a friend on, you know, quote on, on the other side, we have to actually work towards dismantling this system. If we want to see a true peace and justice and these kids grow up together, uh, not divided by, by checkpoints and uh, other horrific policies. And so I, and at the time, the second, it's not really the second, but the, the, the father of 2000, broke out and intifada means it comes from a Palestinian word uh, intifada to mean it means to rise up or to shake off and it means to like to actions to shake off the occupation Uh, but what people took to the streets Palestinians to to demonstrate in mass largely unarmed Palestinians we and I and I was there and I participated the Israeli military came at us with brute force with their tanks and APCs, uh, armored personnel carriers firing um, rubber-coated steel bullets and live ammunition. So within the first month of these protests, about 127 Palestinians were shot dead. Um, And that's shortly thereafter is when uh, some friends and I in the area, both Palestinians, internationals, and Jewish activists living in Jerusalem at the time, Uh, co-founded the International Solidarity Movement. And that was an effort to support the Palestinian popular resistance, like these marches and organizing against the the, the brutal policies that was repressing Palestinians. And the idea was to call for people from all over the world to come join us because Palestinians protesting alone, they get shot and killed, brutalized, arrested, put away for years without charge. Uh, Nobody holds Israel accountable for Palestinian lives but we figured if internationals were standing with them side by side, Israel wouldn't be so brutal. Then these uh, internationals could travel back to their home countries, which Palestinians can't do easily. And they would tell others and the word would spread. We could break through the mainstream media. And we could importantly give Palestinians a sense of hope that they're not alone, uh, that that people around the world see and hear them and care enough to come and stand with them. Uh, that was back in 2001. And the ISM International Solidarity Movement is still operating people from all over the world coming uh, to stand with Palestinians and witness and and march with them and then report what's happening in an effort to wake up the world and change the policies of our government. One of the things that we heard the most when um, internationals heard the most from Palestinians is immense gratitude for their presence there with them, but then also a request that everybody go back to their home countries and just tell people what's happening, what they saw with their own eyes. Because once you see uh, what's happening, it's really hard to look away. And maybe if you can't go there yourself, if you're hearing it from someone you know, then it will also break through. And and we're hoping, unfortunately, it's still 20 years, it's now more than 20 years later, and the situation is as as worse as ever. but we have to hold on to hope because what other option do we have? I, I just wanted to say the story uh, that, that really touched me the most when you recount that, um, I've seen you recount elsewhere, is your mother saying, you know, being worried and, and saying, come home, and you saying, I am home. Yeah, um, I my parents would frequently call when I'm there and they'd hear 
Israeli fire in the background and plead with me to come home. And, you know, I, I as a Palestinian said, I am home, but I think that also that goes for anybody that believes we are a global family and we act wherever we see injustice. I mean, people, uh, they're our homes, right? They, uh, and- Humanity knows no nationality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that the thousands of people that have come with ISM have felt that. And that's why uh, when they leave, they don't forget what they saw. They don't forget the incredible uh, generosity and human humanity of the Palestinian people who somehow, somehow, and I um, struggle sometimes to, to understand how, are able to maintain a... Uh, their humanity, despite the fact that for their entire lives, they've seen nothing but brutal Israeli policies and the indifference of the entire world. Uh, and yet they are the kindest, most welcoming people you will ever meet. I just want to ask you one more question. I promise to let you go after that. Um, I'm not going to ask you the question that I constantly, constantly see on a lot of mainstream media. I always see whenever a Palestinian is on, you know, they're asked, do you denounce Hamas? I, I feel like that question is asked constantly and it's not asked on the other side. When when an atrocity is committed by Israel, you know, Israelis aren't asked, do you support, you know? But what I do want to ask is, I know a lot of people that listen to this show that were in some way deeply emotionally impacted and, and traumatized, uh, lost uh, relatives or, or friends on October 7th. And now I also know listeners that are losing friends or family due to the bombing of Gaza. What do you want to say to both sets of those listeners? Because I know emotions are very, very high right now. Yeah, look, no one, no one should lose their life to senseless, to, to, to violence period. And, and violence is senseless, but to change it, we have to get to the root cause of the violence and demonizing an entire people um, is not the way to do it. And that's what we see happening. Hamas is not just Hamas. Hamas is part of the Palestinian people. And I, I need to add that a lot of the reporting that we've seen has not only been biased, but it's actually been um, debunked. The the extent to which politicians and the media have parroted uh, unproven allegations and actual lies, even after it's been debunked, is is astounding. Uh, so the claim of mass rape of women and beheaded babies, none of that has not an iota of evidence, and the the beheaded babies has been. Uh, debunked, and yet we still hear people say that. Now, this is not to excuse anything or to say that the uh, other that civilians weren't killed, Israeli civilians, they were. And like I said, nobody should lose their life to this kind of violence. But you don't do anyone any favors and you do nothing to actually help end the violence if your strategy is to demonize the Palestinian people and use that as justification to uh, wipe them out, which is exactly what we see happening now. I was 
in Gaza in 2009. I took in a group of lawyers after Israel's first major military assault after they locked down Gaza. It was called Operation Cast Lead in 2008 to 2009. The devastation, the destruction was massive, massive schools, churches, homes, um, mosques, businesses flattened and uh, hundreds. Actually, there was about 1,350 uh, Palestinians killed, over 300 of them children. And the trauma was astounding. Uh, it was estimated by the Palestinian uh, Community Mental Health Network then that almost 100% of the children were traumatized. Now, those children that I met in Gaza in 2008 have since lived through 15 more years of a closure that denied them basic, basic rights. And on top of that, have lived through, if they survived, four more massive military campaigns with more destruction, the loss of thousands of more lives to the absolute indifference, if not the active support of the world community. What is a Palestinian child who's known nothing else but this kind of violence and nobody cares? It's not, for me, I don't understand how there aren't more actually fighters. And I say that if Hamas was gone tomorrow, Israel wouldn't change its policies and you're just breeding more resistance. Now, what form that resistance will take you don't know. As I said, we've done massive nonviolent resistance and there is violent resistance. Palestinians have a right to resist. Otherwise, they, we are just asking them to accept their subjugation, as I, and I said, to lie down and die quietly. And no one would accept that. Who would accept that for themselves and their families? No one. This doesn't justify the killing of, of noncombatants, of civilians. But again, what do you expect when this is the condition that you've created and this is how you've treated people for all of their lives? So you want to change it? We have to put the pressure on Israel to dismantle its system. Right now, what we need is a ceasefire now, an end to the bombing. We need a lifting of the criminal blockade and we need an eventual dismantling of the system that makes all Palestinians, all Palestinians less than, less than human to the Israeli uh, system that controls every aspect of their lives. Only when you have true freedom and equality for everyone is when you can see that you will ha have addressed the violence and people are truly living. I just wanted to say on a, on a closing note here, I, I think what people need to realize at this point is the Palestinian people have persevered and you know, I've seen people say, oh, this is the end of the Palestinian cause. I don't think this is the end. They've been along, the, the Palestinian people have persevered longer than most of the people making these comments have been alive. So this is not going away and there needs to be a political solution. Uh, there needs to be a right to self-determination and it's not going away and the Palestinian people are not going away. Uh, I wanna thank you again, Huwada Araf, and is there any way that my listeners can keep up with your work or the work of the International Solidarity Movement? They can keep up with the work of the ISM on the website, which is palsolidarity, P-A-L-solidarity.org. Um, I would actually recommend that, you know, first and foremost, what we need people to do is to speak up um, right now to 
to care, to get educated and to speak up right now are our urgent, most urgent um, task is to stop the genocide in Gaza. And there are mass mobilizations. There were thousands of Jews today actually blocking the all the entrances to the White House. Massive arrests and these actions are going to continue uh, because, and I adore some of our comrades and the strength that it takes for them to be able to speak out and to say, do not weaponize our grief to commit mass slaughter. Uh, and so they're mobilizing. We're trying to get people to mobilize. Call your member of Congress. Demand an end to, you know, demand a ceasefire and uh, demand an end to the unbridled support of Israeli policies. These are our tax dollars that are paying for it. Uh, and then, you know, so that's the most urgent need. But long term, also campaign Palestinians as part of the nonviolent resistance of our movement have called for global boycotts, divestment and sanctions. Uh, like the world mobilized and divested from apartheid South Africa, which contributed to dismantling apartheid. We hope that this will also be a strategy that will lead to the dismantlement of Israel's settler colonial apartheid system. And so they can learn more about BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions at bdsmovement.net. Next up, a conversation with Jeff Halper of the Israeli Committee Against Housing Demolitions. Jeff also helped found the One Democratic State campaign. I've had him on the show before. He spoke to me from Jerusalem, and we covered a number of different topics. This conversation was recorded yesterday, 10 17 2023, and I hope you'll find it of some value. Now on to the conversation with Jeff Hulper. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I wish I was speaking to him under uh, better circumstances. Uh, uh, you know, we, we see just horrors uh, unfolding in Gaza right now, before that uh, in, in Israel. Uh, but our guest is Jeff Hulper of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. Uh, I, I'd ask, how are you doing? But I, I think it's a, a tough time all around for all of us. That's right. Thanks for having me. In better times, you might not have had me. But um, yeah, I mean, we have to preface everything by saying that we mourn and deplore the loss of all civilian lives whether they're Palestinian or Israeli. And that's, I mean, period. There's no but or addition to that. I mean, that's that's a given. But then you have to go on. You know, one of the problems is that, you know, in the, in the obviously emotional and even traumatic aftermath of these kinds of horrific events that are done all the time here, um, political analysis by its nature is cold. And it's calculated, and it it doesn't it, it 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 can be very jarring, be very can make people very angry because it doesn't seem to be addressing what happened in terms of the the deaths and the traumas and and everything else, but it but it doesn't. I mean, it's it's trying to analyze, and it, in some ways, it's trying to prevent further death, but it's very hard to find that balance 
between yes, I deplore all the deaths and 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 uh, the terrible things that Hamas has done, but also the terrible things that Israel has done and is doing now. Um, but at the same time, we can't leave it at that, and then uh, uh, you know, and then you know, justify one side or the other. We've got to get to a political analysis that shows us the way out. This isn't the moment for political analysis, but nevertheless, you know, I think we, we do have to keep that in the perspective. We have to forefront the um, the political, because that's really why this is all happening. I guess one of the places I wanted to start, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about, there's a lot of debate happening right now, I think, in the U.S. media about how to cover this. And a lot of people are saying, you know, we need to give context and other voices are saying, what context, you know, this Hamas attack was so brutal. There is no context. Um, could you talk about where you stand on this? Because I feel like both of us believe that, you know, this doesn't start on October 7th. Uh, this has been building for a long time. Various issues have been building to this point. And now with the bombing of Gaza, you know, this did not start start overnight. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, I mean, that's that's the point, and that's why I'm saying we have to forefront this political uh, uh, the political context. I mean, it didn't start. You see, from Israel's point of view, uh, Hasbara, with propaganda and so on, it does start from October seventh because that feeds into the whole. You know, you start with the murders, right? I mean, it's like you see what what all uh, what all colonial states do, uh, you know, over history is you criminalize the resistance. In other words, resistance, and this is resistance. I mean, I don't, I, I deplore the way it was done. Um, you know, I'm not a Hamas supporter by any means. I, I kind of deplore their their political program as well. Nevertheless. This is a resistance to, uh, you know, to colonization and occupation. Maybe not done in the right way. Maybe, uh, I mean, a lot of terrible things happen in anti-colonial struggles. You know, in South Africa, you had uh, sometimes black Africans, uh, you know, uh, burning tires around other black. I mean, awful things happen in these. You, it's not all controlled and it's not all deliberate and people make bad decisions and it's bad for all of that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, um, colonial, colonial states criminalize the resistance. Israel has never, ever recognized, ever, until today, the existence of a Palestinian people. It's never recognized their national rights. It's never recognized the two-state solution, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and of course, is, is Zionism is a settler colonial movement. That over the last 130 years, and especially the 75 years since Israel was established, has systematically conquered and taken over all of historic Palestine. And, and today, there, there is one state today. It's an Israeli apartheid state over the entire territory of historic Palestine from the river to the sea. Um, and, uh, and Israel's advantage, of course, is that it's a state. It's recognized by the UN, and states have a certain privilege. I mean, they're supposed to follow international law. I mean, that's what Biden says, too. But we all know that if states violate international law, it doesn't matter. 
uh, you know, they get sometimes wrapped on the wrist or something, but usually it, it doesn't matter because states, you know, all international politics are transactional and it has to do with power and what you give and take and so on. And Israel has too much, too many resources, whether it's Jewish votes in the U.S. or Christian evangelical votes in the U.S. or its military hardware and its military sophistication or its... Uh, um, it's exports of surveillance technologies all over the world or whatever it is, or being the surrogate of the U.S. in the Middle East or being, you know, at the at the front of the American attempt to create a NATO in the Middle East. Whatever it is, Israel has those resources that the oppressed people, the Palestinians don't have. I, I think that's a very I just wanted yeah. to say I think that's a very important point, because I know people that are generally apolitical or they just don't know anything about Israel-Palestine. And right. I, believe it or not, I've known people that have framed this as the state of Israel versus the state of Palestine, to which yeah. I have to chuckle because there is no state of Palestine. That exactly. is the That's what is in contention right now. They're always trying to find a false symmetry. Both peoples, both have to negotiate, both have to end the, you know, and there is no symmetry between the colonized and the colonizer. So what I'm, what I, all right, so just to finish the point then, and that is that uh, states have a certain legitimacy. States have a right to raise an army, right? States have a right to wage war. Israel has the right to import billions of dollars of weapons. I mean, the United States just sent Israel hundreds of missiles and iron dome uh, missiles and and, uh, and ammunition and all you know the two aircraft carriers all that when the palestinians bring in weapons you know from iran into gaza that's smuggling you see a state has has rights and privileges that non-state actors don't have palestinians are not a state they have no uh, right to raise an army. They have no right to wage war. Uh, and now, international law, you do have the right to, for armed struggle against an oppressing power or a colonizing power. You do have that right, but it's not really, it's, it's not recognized. And so what happened, you know, by the states. And so what happens is uh, resistance is criminalized. You see, and that's where the whole terrorism come thing comes. And that's where Saturday, October 7th feeds in. That's day one for Israel, because this is terrorism. I mean, there was a slaughter, really, of people. That's unexcusable. I mean, nobody can, can justify that in any in any political way. Um, and so that, so, you know, that then shows that Palestinian resistance is really just terrorism. There's no political goal. There's no political uh, program. They're not fighting colonialism. They simply want to kill Jews. That's the narrative, you see, and that's what and that's what happens when you start with day one, and then you go from there, and th and then of course Israel's justified. And what Blinken says, Israel is not retaliating in Gaza. It's defending itself. States have a right to defend themselves. Well, what oppressed peoples have a right to defend themselves. So you see, the whole thing is skewered like that um, when you start from day one and when you try to, um, uh, you know, you know, when you try to justify 
the resistance of oppressed people, then you get in trouble that you're justifying terrorism. The let me just say what the Palestine, there's three ways out for the Palestinians. They can negotiate. I mean, if they want to end, which I have a right to do, end the oppression, end the colonization, try to get to a political settlement that gives them back, restores their national rights, there's three ways to do it. They can negotiate. They can uh, appeal to international law that supports their struggle for national rights. Or they can resist. And they can resist nonviolently or they can resist violently. They say there's four ways. Negotiation has been blocked. They accepted the two-state idea. The Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1988, now we're talking about 30 years ago or more, uh, recognized Israel. In other words, think of this. A colonized people recognizes the right of their colonizers to remain on 78% of their country. They relinquished 78% of their country and say, give us a state on the 22% that remains. No, that was Israel refused, the international community refused. Negotiations, you know, failed them. They appealed to international law. We have a right to fortune of the convention uh, that protects people under, you know, uh, under occupation, that doesn't allow Israel to demolish houses and do an attack as it is. Nobody's enforcing it because international law can only be enforced through the UN and the US has the veto power. So that's blocked. Not nonviolent resistance. That was the Intifada. First Intifada was a massive uprising, a nonviolent uprising, put down militarily, and 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 the world went on. So what are you left with? You're left with violent resistance, but that then is characterized as by states as terrorism. It's not legitimate. So what are you left with? You have to live forever under conditions of besiegement in Gaza. So you see the whole thing is skewered against the Palestinians. And it, it's not just Gaza we should mention. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to talk at all about the West Bank and also yeah. the work you do with uh, ICAHD. Uh, can, can you give a broader it's picture? Because this goes beyond Gaza. No, of course. Uh, I mean, Gaza is kind of a, uh, almost a, um, a superfluous part of the whole thing. Uh, you know, Israel, uh, you know, Zionism, again, is a colonial, settler colonial movement. I mean, the U.S. is a settler colonial country. So you guys should know, uh, you know, what settler colonialism is all about. You know, that's set about, uh, you know, 130 years ago to transform an Arab country into a Jewish country, to Judaize. And and that's what it's it succeeded in doing that. Uh, and the Palestinians have then been locked into little Bantustan islands, enclaves. You know, Israel has 85% of the land. The Palestinians, who are half the population, are confined to 15% of the land. Uh, and so uh, in the West Bank, Israel wants to annex. We don't call it the West Bank. We call it Judea and Samaria. And there are today almost 800,000 settlers, Israeli settlers in the West Bank. So that's why I say de facto there already is one state. The two-state idea was in the air, but Israel never accepted it, and it's and it's gone. Okay, um, and that's really and there's tremendous violence in the West Bank that isn't being re reported. The settlers are on a rampage. The Israeli settlers and they're driving Palestinians out of their houses. Whole villages are being are running away because 
because the settlers, the settlers are being backed by the army and are attacking violently the Palestinians, the farmers especially. Uh, two days ago, six Palestinians were killed by settlers. And of course, they're never tried, they're never uh, convicted, and, and so on. So that, that's really the big story. And Gaza is something else, because now, now remember who the Gazans are. 80% of them are refugees from what became Israel. We owe, as Israelis, a certain moral obligation to these people. These are people we drove out, and now we're making them refugees again. We're, drive, we're forced transferring out of their homes and trying to get them to move south, and Israel would love to, to, to leave Gaza completely. And, and do a second Nakba, a second uh, uh, expulsion of Palestinian refugees like in 1948. But Gaza is irrelevant in, a, in the bigger sense because it has too many Palestinians. It's a little tiny territory. Gaza is the size of Omaha. So that uh, in terms of, in terms of, uh, of uh, territorial territory, it's two and a half million people, which is much bigger than Omaha. Uh, and so, uh, and so Israel doesn't want to annex it. It can't govern it. It doesn't want to govern it. There's just too many Palestinians. So it really wants to just cut it off. And in fact, it, where it was going before this attack was they wanted, it, they wanted Hamas to take over. Israel was willing to have a two-state solution. You have Israel plus the, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem is one state, a Jewish state, and Gaza under Hamas as the Palestinian state. Uh, you know, I mean, that was the idea. And the, one, part of the surprise of this attack wasn't only the attack that caught Israel, uh, you know, uh, with its pants down, but the fact that Israel really did see Hamas as a political partner. I mean, for all the different missiles and this and that, it, it relied on, it knew that Hamas was the only force capable of governing Gaza. And even though it didn't like its agenda, as long as Hamas would confine itself to Gaza, fine, that really served Israel's purposes. And so now this, now here's just something else to throw into the pot. What does this do now? What's Israel going to do now? Uh, let's say it conquers Gaza. It, or it's going to go in. Wipe out Hamas. Fine. Now what? Now you're, you have to govern yourself. Two and a half million people with no houses, no infrastructure, no economy, uh, no hospital, and Israel can't do that. And the international community is not going to pick up the tab. So we're really getting into a, 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 in other words, I think Israeli settler colonialism has shown itself to be unsustainable, even though Israel thought it was winning this war against the Palestinians. One thing I wanted to bring up to you, something I always hear uh, when criticism is made of Israel in regard to treatment of the Palestinians is, well, there are Palestinian citizens of Israel. There's Arab-Israeli citizens. So what do you say to people that will bring that up and, and say, see, the Palestinians aren't mistreated? First of all, these are the remnants of the Palestinian people. You know, in 1948, Israel drove out 750,000 Palestinians out of a population of, uh, of 900,000. So it drove out uh, 80 some percent of the Palestinian people who are still refugees in Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. The 150,000 remained in 1948 have today grown to about uh, a million and a half or so. 
They're 20% of the Israeli population. It's true they have citizenship, but they've lost all their lands. They're all confined to little tiny uh, enclaves. Again, uh, 96% of the land of Israel belong is, is reserved for Jewish use only. Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, do not have access to 96% of the land of, the, of their own country because they're not Jews. Uh, and there's all kinds of other, they're really second-class citizens in a million other kinds of ways. But we have to remember these are the, are the remnants of the Palestinian people. They are not recognized as a national group. Uh, uh, and, um, and uh, you know, they're marginalized economically. Uh, so they're really, I, I mean, you can't really say there's any kind of equality. I mean, they are a relig- uh, 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 an ethnic minority. This is the way Israel sees it an ethnic minority in a Jewish state with very limited rights. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, a law was passed that Hebrew is now the only official language, not Arabic as well. And that the important thing is the government gave instructions to the courts that any time there's a case involving Palestinians in which there's a conflict between human rights and democracy on one side, and Jewish values and interests. On the other side, the court has to rule in favor of the Jewish values. So it's a, it's a what we call it officially a Jewish democracy. And the minute you qualify democracy, you know, you talk about a white Christian democracy in the United States, everybody knows what that means. You talk about a Jewish democracy, it's not a genuine democracy. If you could, I, I know we've mentioned Zionism a few times here, and I feel like there are different forms of Zionism. I feel like when you and I are talking about this, we're talking about political Zionism. There's also a, a sort of cultural Zionism that I think could actually be compatible with a one-state solution. Could you speak more to that? That's right. Zionism is a national movement, the national movement of Jews uh, who came to this country. Now, had they come to this country and said to the Palestinians that are living here, we want to come home. We feel ourselves in exile in Europe. We've been persecuted. This is before the Holocaust. This is in the early 1900s. We, we, but they were persecuted by Russia, by the Cossacks. We want to come home. We want to reestablish a national presence in Palestine, in Israel, land of Israel. We want to revive our national language of Hebrew. We want a national life here, but we recognize and acknowledge that there is a Palestinian people here, and there were voices like that. Let's see what we can work out. That, that was cultural Zionism. Cultural Zionism says, yes, we're Zionists. We want to come back and revive our national life here, but we can do that together with the Palestinians. We don't need a state to do that. What we need is for our peoples to come, to, because the Palestinians are going through the same process of you know, after World War I, of trying to reorganize as a national group, having been cut off from Syria. Okay. And that's and that could have led to some kind of, a, a, you know, there was a, a, that, that concept of, of coexistence. But the, the dominant strain of Zionism by far was that of political Zionism. This is Ben-Gurion and the, and the mainstream that, took, that founded the state of Israel in 1948. And they said no. 
This is the land of Israel. It is not Palestine. Uh, this belongs to the Jews exclusively. Uh, Palestinians have no national rights here. They're not even Palestinians. Until today, we call them Arabs. We don't call them Palestinians in a generic way. And, and therefore, the whole it became an ethno-national religious struggle, again, to transform uh, an Arab country into a Jewish country through ethnic cleansing. And today, because we couldn't get rid of every, all the Palestinians today, apartheid. Um, so that it was a struggle really between political and cultural Zionism. And I think that cultural, now that political Zionism has exhausted itself, and you see it with Gaza, it has nowhere else to go. It's become too oppressive. It can't stop the resistance. Uh, it, it, just, it, it just can't, it's too unstable, too disruptive to the region. Now, in a sense, is a time when cultural Zionism can reemerge. And this is, I'm, I'm the head of an organization called the Israeli Committee Against House Demolition. That's ICAD, IHC. But I'm also the co-founder of another organization, which is led by Palestinians, called the One Democratic State Campaign. You know, what we're saying is the only way out is for uh, Palestinians as a national group and Israeli Jews as a national group um, to, to come together in one democratic state, one citizenship for everybody in a civil state, and then each group will have the ability to express its national culture and so on, but within within a common state. That That is very compatible with cultural Zionism, and it's a win-win for everybody. Today, we're very far from that. And of course, as long as Israel feels it's winning, and it's and it's beaten the Palestinians and it's taken all the land and it has the support of the United States and a lot of the governments, especially the G7, it has no reason to go there. So what we have to do is try to uh, appeal to the peoples of the world, like in the anti-apartheid anti struggle, and try to get this one democratic state um, to be adopted by the peoples and then press governments to begin to recognize it. But there is there is a way out. Uh, but it's a very distant way, especially given what's happening today. I mean, that being said, it seems like, you know, there there are some voices saying that it's not even one state solution. It's becoming the one state reality. You know, I just had Ian Lustig yeah. on. I mean, it seems like the two state solution has just been, you know, put on the back burner for so many years. I mean, it's not even really treated very seriously anymore. It seems like we, yeah. th this the democratic state for a lot of people in a lot of people's minds may be the only solution. No, I, I well, it should be, but, uh, um, you know, uh, the two state solution wasn't just Israel gets a state on 78% of the country and the Palestinians 22%, but it was accepted by the PLO, by the Palestinians. So, so it could have worked. But Israel, of course, never accepted it and began to settle all the land that should have been in the West Bank. It would have been a part of the Palestinian state. So that's gone. It's gone. There is no room anymore for a Palestinian state. Okay. Then you go to one state. Well, there's two versions of one state. Like we said, there already is one state. There is one governing power over the entire country between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, and that's Israel. 
but it's an apartheid state because only Jews and a few Palestinians have citizenship. The five million uh, uh, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza have no citizenship. So it's it's apartheid. And that, like South Africa, is illegitimate and, 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 and can't be. So the only thing left, again, is true, is one is to transform the one apartheid state that exists today that Israel created into a democratic state of equal rights for all its citizens. So in some ways, this shouldn't be such an outrageous idea for Americans. You know, what's happening is the United States is going around the world to Iraq, Afghanistan, everywhere, and saying, freedom and democracy. You've got to have freedom and democracy, and if you don't accept it, we're going to shove it down your throats militarily. We're going to overthrow your government's regime change to give you freedom and democracy. All right? Here come the Palestinians. And they say, you know what, America? We'd like a little freedom and democracy. We're buying. And the answer is no. No. You, Palestinians, you can't have that. Because that endangers Israel. And so and so, the Palestinians are the only people that are refused by the United States freedom and democracy while they're shoving it down the throat of everybody else in the world. So the whole, the whole world is run in a cynical, transactional way. It's all deals and it's all power and it's all our interest in short term. And oppressed peoples like the Palestinians and many others have no leverage in that kind of a thing. You know, they have no, they, they're not at the, at the table even between the powers. So everything is done Look at the normalization process that, is, that the United States is trying to broker. United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel, three powerful countries that would normalize relations, and the hell with the Palestinians. And what do the Palestinians have to bring to the table? And, and so the whole world is run in a way that disempowers the oppressed people. So right now in the U.S., I'm very frightened by the rhetoric that I'm seeing right now. You know, uh, here in the U.S., we have Ron DeSantis here in Florida basically saying, well, all Palestinians are just inherently anti-Semitic. We just had, um, I think it was Isaac Herzog in Israel saying there are no civilians in Gaza. I think we're facing um, a very frightening moment of dehumanization of Palestinians. In in your having worked with Palestinians, what do you want people to know if they're unfamiliar with the Palestinian people. What do you want them to know about Palestinians and what their uh, desires and aspirations are? Look, the Palestinians a uh, hundred and some years ago were a normal people, mainly agricultural. They were living in their villages in Palestine. They had some cities, Jerusalem, Jaffa, Tiberias, Akko, Haifa. You know, they were cities here. Beersheba, and they were living as a peaceful. Palestinians have never had an army. They've never been militants. They're not the Cossacks. They're not Genghis Khan. They were just normal people living here. Okay. World War I comes about. The Ottoman Empire falls. They were part of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. And, and, uh, and Britain takes over. And Britain says, and, and at the same time, you have this Zionist movement emerging of Jews that say we want to go back to Palestine and, and, and start a Jewish country. 
and the British uh, support the Jews. I mean, because there's a lot of Jews in the U in in Britain, and they didn't really, uh, you know, know, you know, who are the Palestinians? I mean, peoples of color in general in the Third World or the Global South had no meaning to the white colonists in Europe. So they basically gave Palestine to the to the Jews, and then in 1948, um, 47 the UN voted to partition Palestine into a Jewish state on 56% of the land and a Palestinian state on, on uh, 42% actually, uh, which wasn't fair because, you know, it was Palestine that belonged to Muslim Arabs. Uh, but, okay, but uh, that, that was done and the Palestinians refused. No colonized people is going to agree that, that the UN they had no authority to do this gives 56% of your country to somebody else. What if the UN had said, you know what, the United States, uh, the Mexican war was illegal, uh, the annexation was illegal, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California go back to Mexico. I mean, that's the same thing. You know, what right does the UN to say that, uh, even though there is international law, and the same thing, they gave 56% of Palestine to the Jews. The Palestinians refused. There was a war. And again, in the war, Israel won. And the Palestinians were, were expelled. And now, and then we got into the whole story that we've been talking about. The Palestinians basically would like Palestine back. <laughs> in other words, their ideal is that Palestine becomes Palestine again. Zionism ends. Israel ends. But... I mean, the Jews stay as equal citizens. Nobody's talking about, you know, throwing the Jews out. They would remain, but they would remain as citizens of a Palestinian state. You know, the problem is that Israelis over the years have become a national group. They're not simply a religious ethnic minority. And therefore, what we're saying is the only way out again is to have one state of equal rights for everyone and then let the national groups have expression they can have museums they can have universities they can have their literature and tv programs but within one civil state basically that's what the palestinians would agree to but it's israel that says no this has to be a jewish state and therefore uh they can't recognize palestinians and give them rights there were just a few more things i want to touch upon really early on in this conversation you mentioned the term hasbara uh, for my listeners, if they were unfamiliar with what that meant, uh, what is Hasbara? I think I, I think I said, but uh, maybe people missed it. Hasbara means to explain as propaganda, and so Israel is very, very skilled at propaganda. And the example being, you know, what happened on uh, October seventh. You know, if you start the story with this terrorist attack. Then Hamas are the bad guys, and we're the good guys, and we're just defending ourselves, and we can do whatever we want to. But if you, and that's what Hasbara is, but if you take a longer perspective, like I'm saying, and you begin to say, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, again, this is a part of a Palestinian resistance to colonialism that's lasted 100 and some years now, that shows you a whole different story. And it puts what happened on October 7th into a perspective. It's a terrible thing, but it's one thing that happened just, you know, among a, a million other terrible things. So Hasbara, you have to be very careful. You have to be very critical 
to see through it and and uh, really ask yourself, you know, is this really the story? Is this really what's happening? And, uh, you know, in general, we have to be critical of what we hear in the media, especially from our government, especially could in you, Florida. Could you, well, yeah, indeed. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, the conditions in Gaza and what is at stake now with this just this bombing campaign? Two and a half people in Gaza, two and a half million people in Gaza. Again, refugees from Israel from 1948. Uh, in 2006, there were elections to the Palestinian Authority, which is the Palestinian semi-government that the United States and Israel imposed after Oslo, okay, on the West Bank and Gaza. In the elections, Hamas won the election. These were elections that Fatah, which is the main secular, more left Palestinian party that's ruling, that ruled the country, didn't want to have because they knew that Hamas, which is a religious right-wing kind of fanatical group, could win because Hamas is the only group that's been resisting the Israeli occupation. You know, the PLO and the Palestinian Authority are seen as not really resisting. And so they said to the United States, no, don't do elections. And Bush, the Sun, and Condoleezza Rice pushed, pushed, pushed. Okay, and finally they had elections, and the wrong party won. Hamas won the election. So Bush and Condoleezza Rice turn around and say, we don't accept the, the results of the elections. And these were Democratic elections. Jimmy Carter was here, and they over and it would they were Democratic elections, fair, free elections. Hamas won. The United States says we don't accept that. Israel said we don't accept it. Hamas is a terrorist group. That's when they were designated as a terrorist group by the United States. And, and therefore, they were outlawed. They're criminals now. And, uh, uh, but the problem is they exist, and they were too strong to remove from Gaza. So now you have this bifurcation. The Palestinian Authority under Fatah runs the West the pieces, little pieces of the West Bank, because Israel has most of it, and Hamas runs runs Gaza. But because Hamas has been classified as a terrorist state, um, Israel besieged it in 2006. In other words, it's completely surrounded. Two sides of Gaza, which is again the size of Omaha, uh, our borders with Israel. Israel has sealed it and built walls and so on. Uh, the sea is on one side. Israel blocks the sea, so even the fishermen can't go out to fish. And another border is with Egypt, and Egypt has blocked that border because they don't want Palestinian refugees coming into Egypt. So they're completely trapped, imprisoned in this little tiny island, two and a half people, the size of Omaha, now they have no water because two and a half million people drinking this little bit of, of aquifer water is not enough rainfall. You run out of water. Uh, they have no electricity because Israel does. Israel controls all electricity and doesn't let enough come in. They don't have food today. Israel has blocked all the food to Gaza. So you got two and a half million people today who are being bombed, carpet bombed. You know, living in rubble. Just right now, a hospital was bombed in Gaza, right 
the last couple hours and hundreds of people were killed in the hospital. You know, no food, no water, uh, trying to flee Israel saying, get out, but they can't get out. They're trapped into this prison. And that's the conditions that's happening. It's like shooting ducks in a barrel. And two and a half million people are being terrorized. Um, you know, and 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 rather than relating to that, Biden is coming to Israel tomorrow to show his solidarity with Israel. And Biden is saying this is self-defense. You know, this whole carpet bombing of this trapped population in this little state. You know, and I think another important thing to tackle, or at least I would want clarification on it, uh, a lot of the shows I've done on this topic in the past week have dealt with some of the articles I'm seeing come out of the Times of Israel and Haaretz uh, saying that Netanyahu had a policy of essentially propping up Hamas in Gaza uh, to divide the Palestinians. Uh, how important is uh, is that to understanding what's currently unfolding? Well, that's the irony and the, and the cynicism. And that is that, you know, Israel saying Hamas is a terrorist state. Israel is now trying to make the case, and Biden and Blinken are, are, are echoing this, that Hamas is ISIS. You know, Hamas is this terrorist group, this cruel group, and so on. But until last Saturday, Israel saw it, like I said, as a political partner. They, re they realize Hamas has a political wing and a military wing. Uh, and, uh, and Hamas is the only party, like we said, that can really govern Gaza. So I think Israel was saying, look, we can get into a kind of a deal that if we let enough electricity come in, we let enough Gazans into Israel every day to work so they have some uh, some subsistence economy. We make things bearable. And Hamas agrees just to confine itself to Gaza and doesn't try to attack us. We can find some kind of a, a deal. In other words, Israel did not see Hamas really as a terrorist entity, even though it was designated that way, uh, but as a political partner. And all of a sudden, Hamas is, uh, is ISIS because they surprised Israel, uh, you know, with this attack on October 7th. So now, again, what I'm saying is the problem Israel has is it has no political partner on the Palestinian side that can take over Gaza. And if it lands in Israel's lap, we don't have the resources to do it. The Republicans, even if the Democrats want to spend a trillion dollars to rebuild Gaza uh, for Israel. I don't think the Republicans are going to go along with that. I mean, DeSantos could say Israel is Israel, but let's say Israel asks him for a trillion dollars to help them support Gaza. He's not going to go there. And so Israel's kind of stuck. Before we close out this important conversation, you know, one of the things I keep hearing, and I don't agree with this, and I'd be interested to know your views on it, a lot of people keep saying, well, look at this Hamas. It, it, they're so awful. If they would just go away, then there would just be this peace. And, you know, I think Hamas could be eradicated and you'd still have Palestinian resistance. So could you comment on that? I mean, it's what we said before. You have to have resistance. First of all, they have a right to resist, even in an armed way, in international law. But what are you going to do? I mean, are you really going to live forever having your homes demolished, having your lands taken, being attacked by Israeli settlers and the army? 
you know, being trapped in Gaza with, with nothing, impoverished, no future for your children, living in violence, a traumatized population where half your people are living as refugees in other places. Can you really live like that forever? That's, that's inhuman. You can't expect that of people. And again, they've tried the legitimate routes. They've tried to negotiate. They've tried the UN. They've tried international law. They've tried peaceful resistance. They've tried violent resistance. Nothing whatsoever works for them. And, uh, and so they're really a, a tragic, tragic population uh, that's suffering, whose rights are being violated all the time by Israel. Israel, according to the UN and Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, is imposing an apartheid state on them, like South Africa. We thought South Africa would be the last apartheid state. Everything, and and yet nobody, governments do not support the Palestinians. They support Israel. The United States supports Israel. And, uh, you know, you have an interesting division. Governments support Israel. Again, because in this transactional international relations, Israel has a lot to offer. You know, military hardware and surveillance stuff, and it does United States dirty work all over the world and so on, especially in the Middle East. But at the same time, um, the peoples of the world, the peoples of the world, including more and more Americans, including more and more American Jews, are, are, are supporting the Palestinians. They see that the Palestinians' rights are violated. They see them as oppressed. Uh, and with concepts of human rights, international law, social justice, I think the Palestinians are winning in the court of public opinion. Our task is how do we how do we mobilize that support the people um, to try to get governments to change their policies and allow the democratic state to emerge. That's really the task in front of us. And you, you uh, cut out there for a second because of the way they work simply won't go with justice government you you said you believe our task is and then it cut out could you repeat that our task is to mobilize you the peoples of the world that do support social justice human rights palestinian rights um you know church groups um labor unions university groups political activists you know, like the anti-apartheid struggle, mobilize all of you to support Palestinian rights and the one democratic state idea, and then to go to our governments, who are not our friends, who don't believe really in justice or international law or human rights, to go to them and say, if you want to get reelected, or to say to them, this issue really matters to me. In other words, members of Congress don't don't care. They just want to get elected. So if they go home and they see that, you know, there's some prominent ministers in my district that are coming to my office and talking about Palestinian rights and, and peace. You know what? We have university students. We have, the, you know, the, 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 the Chamber of Commerce, you know, uh, my civic or the, the Rotary Club I belong to. The people are talking about Palestine. Then I know because I don't want to go back to Washington and speak out for Palestinians and then get hit by the media and get hit by the Christian evangelicals and, and lose the next election. I have to know 
that I have support back home if I advocate for Palestinian rights in Congress. So that's really our task. So let our representative know that we care about Palestine, care about their rights, and that if they do speak out for Palestinians in Congress, that they will have our back. And that's really, I think, the task of all of us today. Well, I want to thank you again, Jeff Halper, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, you can uh, email me at jeffhalper at gmail.org. One word, Jeff Halper. Or our ICAD website, the Israeli Committee Against Health Solutions, is icahd.org. And you can keep up. We do we have great resources on our website. Join us. We have an and we have an ICAD USA chapter, by the way, that's based in, in Indiana. Um, so you can also look up uh, icahdusa.org and you go to their website as well. So it's easy to find us be in touch with us and, and, and support us. Thank you for having me on. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found the episodes I've been doing on this subject helpful. I believe I have one or two more interviews on the subject. Uh, Professor Stephen Walt came on to discuss these matters. That'll be posted shortly. As always, if you can, please support my show on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.